Hello, my name is Ben McCarthy and welcome to this week's episode of Anything But Square. In partnership with Acme, FedSquare is presenting the Not So Silent Film Series, a collection of four silent films that will be scored live in the main square. Today, we are joined by guest host Philip Brophy and musician Philip Johnston to discuss the program and the process of creating a brand new score for an existing movie. All right, Phil, I'll I'll let you introduce this. Well, we're here to talk about um, the program at ACME and at Federation Square, which is a series of four different programs of live performances of contemporary scores for silent films, an area that I'm particularly interested in. I have the honor to uh, be the first program, but there's three others afterwards that are all pretty amazing. So tell us about the particular film. I mean, you've done a number of contemporary scores for pre-existing silent films, but the one you're doing at um, FedSquare seems quite a fascinating one, a, a very early animation. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Well, The Adventures of Prince Ahmed, directed by Lado Reininger, is a German silhouette animation from 1926. Many people call it the first feature-length animation. Like anything in uh, scholarship, there's some debate about the actual details, but it's really, uh, I think, has a place in history that's really interesting. In that sense, the idea of silhouette animation, which is tiny cut-out pieces of paper uh, photographed individually and then edited together, is quite an unusual one in animation. When people um, think about animation, they think about what we think of as cartoons or um, animated cartoons. Uh, This is quite different, though it really has more of a relationship to Balinese shadow puppets and other kind of similar um, pre-film theatrical traditions. But it's based on The Thousand and One Nights, the Arabian story, and it focuses on two stories in particular, which is Aladdin, and his magic lantern, and then another story, it's called Ahmed and Peri Banu, uh, which is uh, incredibly arcane and elaborate. I couldn't even begin to do justice to the plot. It's so crazy. And uh, it's just an amazing story, which um, is a great story for kids, yet is a fascinating piece of visual cinematic art. It operates on a number of levels at once. Is this the first time you've done a contemporary score for an animation? Uh, As a matter of fact, it is. This is the only animation that I've done, which is really kind of weird because I love animation so much. The only other thing that I would compare it to is over the last few years I've been doing this project that I did in collaboration with the graphic artist Art Spiegelman called Wordless, which is not animation, but it it brings to life graphic novels as sort of a glorified slideshow. But it is a live performance to graphic, you know, drawings and so on. It's the closest thing. But for one reason or another, I've never worked either on contemporary animation other than a couple of licensed things or 
on historical animation. And I love that stuff. It's just never happened for one reason or another. Uh, you remember the cartoon Ren and Stimpy? Well, I was so close to having that job that it was announced in the New York Post that I was going to be the composer, and they ended up going with all licensed music. That's right. It's almost happened a few times, but that's a long-winded answer, to which I should have said yes. <laughs> and um, what I'm very interested in, uh, Philip, is how you have, I think, consistently concentrated on the internal DNA, if you like, of the narrative of the films that you pick, meaning that it's like your music accompaniment, your scoring, uh, really does feel embedded within the drama, the psychology, the characters and whatnot, um, as opposed to a more prevalent approach to contemporary scoring, which is more pastoral, it's more scenic, it's more setting a general mood for the scene rather than going into anything too specific. The general pastoral scores, I think, uh, have a very ambient Eno-esque style kind of tinge to them the, where big sheets of music float over a number of shots and scenes even, which can be very interesting. But um, your scores tend to be molecular, very um, micro in their sections and um, changing quite considerably, which makes it, uh, I think, a fascinating experience listening to the music and um, watching the narratives. Can you talk about the approach that you know you've developed in this way well thank you philip uh that's kind of you to say i that w what you just said brings up so many different interesting topics i'm not quite sure where to begin let me say that yes my uh scores are extremely detailed and one of the differences about this particular score is the fact that um because Unlike everything I've done up until now, with the exception of Wordless, with which I mentioned before, all the music was performed completely live uh, and just relying on visual cues in the film to stay in sync with the film. That's the way most people do it. However, um, because I decided as part of my approach to this particular film to use a combination of live performance and pre-recorded audio, the pre-recorded audio, in a sense, functions as a giant click track. So it allows, allowed me to be detailed in my correlation to the film in a way that was a step above whatever I've done before. So that allowed it in the in terms of the issue you bring up about detail relationships then the second thing i would say is that putting aside the issue of pastoral versus detailed let me just say that from the very first time i started doing um original scores for silent film i was struck and this has continued ever since by the fact that most of the silent film scores that you see basically adhere to very traditional relationships between the storytelling in the sense of a traditional sound film approach and the music. That is to say, you see what's considered to be a traditional approach to, let's say, a scene of the Keystone Cops running around fast 
you will have very fast ragtime piano played on an out-of-tune spinet piano. When a modern group plays for that same scene, what they usually do 9.9 times out of 10 is maybe they're using rock music, but they still play fast, hectic rock music. The relationship between the film and the music is still the same. It's only the style has been updated. What I try to ask in my films is, what happens if we have that same scene of Keystone Cops, but you played, say, one of Eric Satie's Gymnopédie behind it? Music that's slow and languorous, while you see on the screen frantic figures running around. It takes you to a whole different place with the film. That's just an example that I use. But um, what I try to do is interact with the film on a more meta level, kind of what you referred to. Not just telling the story of what's happening in the film, but in different film scores, interacting with it in a way that is more aggressive, I guess you would say, or more, I, I don't take everything in the scene for granted because I take the point of view that we in 2021 can never know what the director's so-called original intent is. And that because the music is not linked to the film inextricably the way a sound film is, that frees us to try out some more experimental interrelationships between the music and the film. So you have to s separate the idea of is the music itself quote-unquote experimental or something else, or is the relationship between the music and the film more experimental? To watch the film Nosferatu and have an electronic score that goes is well that's modern music and it's very interesting but it's actually kind of the same relationship between the picture and the music let me finally end that long ramble though with the comment that i love all modern scores for silent films traditional ones experimental ones i just think it's a wonderful wonderful art form and it gives such pleasure to audiences, and it's such a great vehicle for music that you can't really do it wrong. This is just my particular bugaboo that I'm into, but people who don't do that, I think that's great too. And Philip, with um, your music, um, this is maybe a lateral question, but I'm wondering, um, does uh, Americana musicologically influence the approach you, you've taken because sometimes I almost feel like I'm hearing a, a kind of a phantom of Charles Ives or something like that um, appearing with um, some of the work you've done and um, you know as an Australian that um, that, that Americana that uh, that melting pot of various approaches to melodies, folk melodies and various traditions is not part of our culture here. And um, I always find it fascinating when I hear it um, uh, in films. And I think we're most familiar with that, those modalities of, of Americana in actual film scores over like decades and decades. 
And so I, I find it um, uh, quite interesting hearing it sometimes in um, um, some of the scores that you've done. Wow, that's a great question. I hadn't really even thought about that at all. I guess it's so innate to me that I never really observed it. I will say, first of all, that Charles Ives is one of my favorite composers and very influential on uh, stuff that I do. I think when I talk about interacting with the film, first of all, let me say I love different genre styles of music and idiomatic styles of music. And in all the music I do for film or not with for film, that's always been a huge part of it tangos and waltzes and blues and uh, different forms of jazz and different forms of, you know, Baroque music and classical music. I just love this stuff. And everything I do is to some extent informed by my love of genres. Uh, And I use it as film composers have often done as a storytelling device. When you put say, um, uh, L.A. hardcore in a film like Repo Man, that immediately establishes something. Film composers have always done that and worked with idiom and genre, and I love to do that. The Americanness of it, I don't know if I can answer that. I'm too close to it, really, to observe. Uh, it's a great thing to think about, though. I'll have to give it some thought. I, I never really realized I was an American until I left America. <laughs> well, that's what I mean. I think, um, you know, everyone's blind to their own cultural background, mm. like just breathing the air or something. But um, maybe maybe a better way of putting it might be that um, your work seems very much in the idiom of jazz, in the greater, you know, definition of, of everything that can be jazz. Do you have an actual jazz background? Is that kind of where you come from, Philip? Or? Well... That's, I think, a very interesting question. When you talk about jazz in terms of film, you have to separate it into two different things. The genre of jazz that sounds like jazz, you know, the the, uh, instrumental expression, the harmony, the the instruments, the kind of uh, the use of the blues, and then the idea of improvisation because Hmm. improvisation is inextricably associated with the idea of jazz, yet the medium of film music is very super controlled. So how do you integrate the idea of improvisation and and the controlled world of film scoring? And that's something that I've worked on in all of my silent film scores, they all contain elements of improvisation integrated with composed material. And really in all my music, that's something that I continue to try to investigate. But to go back to what I think is the intent of your question, if I understand it correctly, even though I also have a classical composition background and have written chamber music and so on, I find that jazz, and in particular blues, the blues language, is an inextricable part of what I do. It's just in the bones of the music that I played my whole career as a saxophone player and the music that I love. Even though I love all these different types of music, 
it just comes out, even in a string quartet that's completely notated. There's always a little blues in it. Okay. Oh, man, that's a shame that um, you didn't get the Ren and Stimpy gig because... <laughs> that would have been the perfect job for me. I love that cartoon. The earlier, the early seasons with John Crystalisi, I would, I, I would have, because, uh, you know, that's all inspired by Warner Brothers cartoons and underground cartoons, which are things that were very influential on my music. But life is full of almosts. Well, that was probably a period. And, you know, John Chris Lucy was kind of in that um, early group. I mean, he's Canadian over on the, um, then shifted over onto the, um, to the West Coast. But so he wasn't really part of the downtown mm. um, New York kind of um, polyglottic avant-garde jazz energy that was happening there. But um, he, he definitely was one of the early people uh, and I, I know this from talking to him that um, you know had a number of ways in which he uh, envisaged audio vision, like not just what the images were, but how sounds would and music would kind of go with the images that he was animating. And um, in the end, he was quite adamant about um, uh, because he was so what we would now call retro. He was very much into an earlier period, a golden age of animation that he saw. Mm. His task is back, um, you know, so completely anti-Care Bears movie kind of approach to that. And so um, part of that sonically, I think, was um, sourcing back original recordings that, like you said, go back to the earlier Warner Brothers cartoons or via um, Raymond Scott and people like mm. that. And so uh, it, it's interesting watching because I actually happened to only watch some Ren and Stimpy just the other, um, well, about last month. And, um, and I'd forgotten about the music, actually, about those kind of strange cues that he used in different ways and whatnot. So it's quite fascinating hearing that um, it's almost like someone in the production knew that you were on a similar wavelength with that approach of going back into those sort of earlier, you know, jazz-inspired approaches mm. to chaotic animation, but... Um, then again, that was uh, um, Nickelodeon and uh, MTV and everyone, and so yes. Well, I, at that time, when at the beginning of cable TV, as part of what I did to earn a living, I worked a lot for Nickelodeon, a little bit for MTV, that whole group of things, just doing music for station IDs and themes and so on, but. Going back to the improvisation thing, obviously a pe person who from that scene of people that I came up with, the primary one is John Zorn, of course. His scores uh, that he does for, he doesn't do silent films so much, though he does some. He does more like uh, 60s avant-garde, avant-garde underground, I guess is the term that you use for it, like Maya Darren and um, those kind of people, uh, and but is completely done with his kind of conducted improvisation. That's an application of pure improvisation to, um, to film scoring. It's a very different and very interesting approach, I think. And there's just this, been this conversation it, certainly among my generation of musicians and composers, uh, between that body of work of the Warner Brothers cartoons and John 
edited and wrote the notes for that early Carl Stalling comp- compilation. If people don't know Carl Stalling, he was the music director for the early Bugs Bunny cartoons, a huge innovator. And that music became part of the DNA of our musical language that we share with the microscopic septet and John and just tons of other people. So there's a whole language going on there that I think was very influential, certainly on the whole MTV thing of very fast audio cutting and so on. Uh, the way uh, sound effects were used in Ren and Stimpy and so on. And so getting back then to the um, uh, Prince Ahmed. Ah, um, good idea. Story. Yeah, we should do that. <laughs> <laughs> So you'll be there with the sax, of course. Yes. And um, is some other players or working with some pre-recorded or what's the, what will the mix be? Okay, here's what we have. We have, I'm playing the saxophone. We have two organ players, Casey Golden and Alan Alistair Spence, two great jazz improvisers, and there is improvisation built into the score. And then uh, James Greening, playing trombone, again, a wonderful improviser as well. So they're playing a written score, which has improvising, and particularly, talk about blues being part of things, blues written into the score, because one of my mandates was to invoke this kind of uh, organ blues, Jimmy Smith, Kenny Burrell kind of language. And then... Pre-recorded against that is a a track that has a live drummer playing on it, but pre-recorded, and then various electronic loops and samples. So it's a combination of electronic score with live performers over it, which is all mixed together. And is it um, is it difficult working with the pre-recorded, like being on the one and everything? Like, oh, are you kidding? It is so much easier. It's unbelievable. When you're doing a live score, which all my previous scores were, and you're operating out off of visual cues and conducting and performing at the same time, you have to get, I mean, there's like 40, 50 tempo changes and meter changes in the whole score. You have to get every one exactly right. If you just get a few BPMs off of the score, well, that's part of the art of that kind of composition is you have to build into it places to catch up. But it's much less precise. For example, my score for F.W. Murnau's Faust is two hours long. For two hours, you have to have 100% concentration following a score that's, you know, many, many bars long. And... If you get off for a minute, you got to get back, and it's it's much easier to work to the pre-recorded. Though it also uh, requires complete concentration. That's the most challenging thing about doing the silent film scores is they don't stop. So for somebody like me who's incredibly uh, absent-minded and has a short attention span and easily distracted, to maintain my focus. For uh, uh, I often tell the story. I used to play in an early band by uh, uh, 
a very good friend of mine, Michael Rouse, and he's kind of his early music. He was a protege of Steve Reich, and it would be one measure of seventeen eight repeated twenty two times, and then moving to a measure of sixteen eight repeating eleven times. I'd get to the first repeat, the second bar, and I'd be going, "How many times was that again?" That's really hard to concentrate like that. <laughs> oh man, and that would be um, yeah, difficult working for Steve <laughs> RSI, wouldn't it? <laughs> it's it's very it's it, it's it's challenging, but it's fun. And so, when was the first time you did um, Prince Ahmed? I was in two thousand and thirteen, and um, but I've never performed it in Melbourne before. Uh, I've I've really only played it in New South Wales, in Sydney, and a couple of regional uh, performances. We did it once just recently in Canberra at the uh, National Film and the Sound Archive, but. Oh. Um, I've continued to do it on and off because there's so many elements of improvisation. It's always fresh and it's always new. And because I have the good fortune to work with such great musicians, ever since I came to this country, I've just been incredibly lucky in the people that I've been able to work with. And uh, it never stops being exciting with people like Alistair and James and Casey. And so you've recently completed a book. Yes, I have. It's coming out in September. Uh, it's called Silent Films, Loud Music. It's about the, uh, this, all the things we're talking about. Actually, the questions you've asked have been like chapter by chapter, the things that are in my book from modern silent films. I actually write about the scores uh, two out of well, including my own, three out of four scores that are being presented in the series at ACME, which is pretty amazing. There's a chapter about contemporary silent films, and I write about the Dr. Planck score by Graham Tardif, which everybody should go check out. It's amazing. And then I interviewed the, uh, the Bluegrassy Knoll, um, Gus McMillan in particular, and write about uh, their score for Sherlock Jr., which is one of the greatest films in any kind of film history and uh, is also on the series. I've also written a score for Cops, which they're also doing, but it's never been performed yet for various reasons, which I won't go into here. Uh, it still has that ahead of it to be premiered, but I'm really looking forward to seeing their score for Cops, which I haven't seen. Cops is another great Buster Keaton short film. So it's a, it's an incredible uh, program. And then the last one is Metropolis. I'm not familiar with the score by, um, are they called the New Pollutants? Yeah, that I don't know. I'm going to try to get back to see all of these, actually, but Life is complicated at the moment. We'll just see if that's possible. And so is there, I mean, just in the COVID watching lockdown kind of of last year, like uh, have you actually seen any films with some interesting film scores? <laughs> oh, I've, I've seen tons of films. I've seen so many great films. Uh, where even to begin? I mean, the single day that we were allowed to start 
going out to films again at all under even under extreme restrictions my family and i we were at the ritz theater in randwick in sydney seeing the first show that they were allowed and then we spent a lot of time there they had this amazing uh series first they were showing every um fellini film oh wow and of course nino roto is one of my favorite composers then they had this great uh series of Jean-Pierre Melville. We saw almost all of those. Uh, so I, I still not only watch a lot of films on TV uh, through various platforms, but I really love going out and seeing films in a theater to see a film on the big screen. And this is another thing that's great about this program is how often do you not only get to see a silent film in a theater on a movie screen, but in the case of Fed Square, see it on a gigantic movie screen. It's really a rare opportunity. Was there any uh, original score done for Prince Ahmed or was it? That's a great question. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes, the, uh, the uh, Lottie Reiniger actually worked very closely with a composer named uh, Wolfgang Zeller. And uh, he composed an orchestral score that would have been performed in sync with the film. Again, when we talk about sync, it would have been performed live because they didn't have the technology. Now you can buy a DVD of Prince Ahmed and it has that orchestral score on it. And it's great, you know, it's a traditional orchestral film score with a little bit of uh, Arabiana woven into it because of the whole um, Thousand and One <laughs> Nights thing. No clue. <laughs> it's great. What I do is a little different. I'll just tell you a funny thing. I, uh, I, one thing when I started writing my score, I said, my first rule, no fake Arabic music in the score. None of that. At the same time, I had just, through my friend Michael Rouse, who was instrumental in the production of this, I had just gotten this great sample library of the original John Cage piano, <laughs> prepared piano Double samples. Up. And I used it a lot in the score. And when I listened back to it, I went, oh my God, those prepared you piano might- samples sound just like uh, Balinese um, gamelan music. Somehow, accidentally, through my own blindness, I, it creeped up on me. Maybe it was uh, unconscious or something. But it's a little element of that accidentally. I just thought, wow, these are great sounds. I've got to use them. John Cage's original piano, it's, it's conceptual, but it's also extremely exotic at the same mm, time. <laughs> exactly. And, of course, that was a, a time of that happens periodically in classical music of rediscovering the music of other cultures and the cage people, um, the, the minimalists were discovering, rediscovering uh, all kinds of um, non-Western music and so on. Actually, that reminds me of one other uh, thing that I think is interesting about the whole issue of original scores. So most silent films did not have original scores attached to them. That was something that just developed in the last years of silent film for the most part. And some of those have been rediscovered. Many of them have been lost uh, and restored. There's people like Gillian Anderson who specialize in this kind of restoration. 
But, um, you know, people sometimes say, well, how do you deal with um, the existence of pre-existing scores when you start to write your original score? Do you try to invoke them and so on? And uh, the answer, of course, is no, I don't. I, I think there's one of the wonderful things about the uh, score not being inextricably linked to the film is there's room for many different scores to coexist. And one of the most fun things is to see the same film with different music and um, see how that changes the film. That's one of the great pleasures. And my theory is just, well, we've seen a Buster Keaton film with traditional silent film type of ragtime piano. Let's see what it's like with this other music and so on. But uh, as part of my book, I interviewed a number of what I consider to be important people in contemporary silent film scores. I interviewed uh, Richard Einhorn, who wrote a, a score for full orchestra and chorus for um, The Passion of Joan of Arc. One of my questions was, what do you think the original director would think of your score? And his answer kind of said it all. He said, I couldn't care less. <laughs> I'm sure that um, that's the kind of fiery attitude that um, makes the project <laughs> interesting. And um, mm. I think um, your music kind of re respects the narrative in the film, but also takes that particular line too, which is what makes it an experimental approach to it, which is great. I try to find a balance because if it was all, you know, genre challenging stuff it it would lose its impact mm, i yeah. try to use those kind of confronting reinventions very selectively and then you have to give way to the unalloyed pleasure of you know fast music and exciting scene or heartbreaking music and a sad scene or so it can't be all mm. Dadaism from beginning to end, at least not in a feature length narrative film. I mean, it can, anything's possible, but I don't do that. I, I support the film and I just try to make the most entertaining and fun score that I can through my own lens of peculiarity. So Phil, why don't you give us the full details then of uh, what's happening with the various scores that are part of this season. It's called the Not-So-Silent Film Series. The first one is Prince Ahmed on February 26th with my original score. On March 5th, we have The Blue Grassy Knoll, Melbourne Zone, the original Australian original score for silent film performers doing scores for Sherlock Jr. and Cops, two of the greatest Buster Keaton films. On March 7th, we have The New Pollutants doing Metropolis, one of the most iconic silent films. Um, and on April 1st, we have Dr. Plonk, Rolf Tahir's contemporary silent film with music by Graham Tardif, who did music for really almost all of uh, Tahir's uh, films and performed by the Stiletto Sisters. Excellent. Um, I just want to say thank you so much to um, ACME and uh, Federation Square for presenting my work and this whole series. I, I will just mention that I was 
presented by ACME once before in 2007 as part of the Melbourne Festival. They presented my score that I referred to for Faust, F.W. Murnau's Faust, which had completely different instrumentation and so on. But it's great to be back working at ACME again, the new ACME. Uh, I'm really excited about seeing it and uh, catching up with what they've been doing. I read the article in The Guardian. Sounds amazing. And I look forward to being back. Melbourne's one of my favorite places anywhere. So really excited about coming to Melbourne. And Philip, thank you so much for doing the interview. Uh, I look forward to catching up on Melbourne. Thank you for listening to the Anything But Square podcast. You can catch up to previous episodes on fedsquare.com, Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and other music streaming platforms. Take care.